Well, we had our service this morning and the uh, video on YouTube that I was going to upload was ruined. I don't know what happened. I think it was something to do with the color between the wall and me or whatever. But uh, we've come back to the church to uh, refilm the video just in case you uh, watch this on YouTube. And um, I also didn't bring my regular Bible that I read when I uh, do these sermons. So I'm going to read out of the NIV for the introduction. And then after that, we're going to go back to the New King James, which I always use for my sermons. Uh, but today is Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11. It's called The Sheaves of the Field and the Stars of the Sky. This is uh, Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf arose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowed down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. For many, many chapters, we've seen that Jacob has been the center of focus in the pages of the Bible. As we saw, his life was used in a most dramatic way to reveal what would come about in the future as God unfolds history before our eyes. We've been able to use him as a reference point so many times for what is going on in human history. Some have come to pass, fulfilled in Jesus or in other ways, and uh, some of them are yet future to us now. But these have been laid out for us to see and to believe. Now, as suddenly as Abraham and Isaac left the center of focus, Jacob does the same. Joseph now becomes the focal point of the narrative with just a couple of brief interludes concerning Judah, who is the fourth son born to Jacob. But Jacob is mostly going to be on the sidelines from this point until just prior to his death. The stories and the pictures which issue from Joseph's life are no less wonderful than those which we saw in Jacob. And if you just go back and look at any of the Jacob sermons, you can see how rich and how detailed the life of Jesus is in the person of Jacob. And now we're going to see the same thing occurring in the life of Joseph. And we're not going to hurry through these coming chapters. And as we go, we're going to look for Christ as we go, knowing that he truly is the focus of all scripture, as he himself has told us. The name Joseph means he shall add. So may these stories about him add to our understanding of God's beautiful plan of redemption. We have a text verse for today coming from Job chapter 33. Here's what it says. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. When reading about dreams in the Bible and seeing that they are actually prophecies, 
We need to be very careful not to assume that every dream we have is a prophecy or a vision from God. God's word is written and we have everything that we need to understand what he desires for us right in his word. Since the completion of the work of Jesus Christ, other than Acts chapter 2, which was spoken to the Jewish people by Peter, who is the apostle to the Jews, dreams as prophetic utterances are never mentioned as being applicable to us. And as this is so, we can make the logical assumption that they are not intended as a tool during this dispensation of time, which is known as the church age. Now, I bring this up because I've had friends that have actually attended churches where the pastor will tell them, write down your dreams and we'll talk about them, we'll analyze them. And that all that does is get our eyes and our attention off of the mark, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, we can have bad dreams or good dreams for any of countless reasons, and they don't have any prophetic significance at all. It's a diversion from what we should be doing, which is analyzing and studying the Bible. And Christianity, our personal Christianity, can very easily get misdirected, and we can lose a sound foothold on it, when we pursue dreams or we pursue those who say they have had dreams. We need to be careful about this kind of stuff. We have the Bible, we have God's revealed word, and that word is, in fact, all sufficient for our faith and practice. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now I have three individual thoughts for you as I normally do today. The first is the genealogy of Jacob. This is verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. In the previous chapter, we saw Esau's move from Canaan to Seir. This verse then is to remind us right here that Jacob is the son of promise and the one who has remained in Canaan. Here it says that he dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger. While Esau's line had moved to and gone to possess the land where they lived, which is the land of Seir, the son of the promised line is still living as a stranger. It's going to be several hundred years before the Israelites actually possess the land of Canaan as the sons of Esau did in their own land. After the death of Abraham, it was Isaac who was noted, just as Jacob is now. Here's what it says in uh, Genesis 25. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roi. The Bible is reminding us of who is in the covenant line, and that God's plans are being worked out through this line. These men dwelling in tents as pilgrims are noted to show that they were waiting on something different. They were waiting on an eternal inheritance. Hebrews 11 explains it to us. It says there in the 13th verse, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Along with the record of this main line, incidents occur which are selected by God to show us pictures of what is going to be seen in Jesus Christ. The coming chapters that are dealing with Joseph will be no different. The line of the Messiah comes through Judah, not through Joseph, but Joseph's life will be a rich tapestry of the pictures of what God will do through his son, Jesus. The amazing depth of how the stories in Joseph's life picture those of Jesus Christ is actually wonderful. Verse 2, this is the history of Jacob. We now come to the 11th set of generations listed in the Bible. This is the last in Genesis, but unlike the other genealogies, 
no listing of descendants is given. Now, I see two reasons for this. The first is that the sons of Israel were named just towards the end of chapter 35. We saw that. They, uh, Jacob is moving from the north down to the south. Rachel dies. All those things happen. And then Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And right after that, the listing is given of the sons of Israel. So we don't need another record of the sons of Israel. But the second reason is that Jacob is the last individual son of promise. From him, the people Israel, including all 12 sons, will be members of the covenant. If you understand what I'm saying, you have Abraham here, and then he had one son of promise, that was Isaac. And from Isaac came only one son of promise, that was Jacob. But now it's going to branch out into all 12 sons of Israel. This history, then, is less of a list of names followed by a historical uh, account than it is of a detailed historical account of what happens to the family all the way into the death of uh, Jacob, which comes towards the end of the uh, Genesis in the land of Egypt. In order given in the Bible, the previous lists of generations were, and I want to give these to you so that you have a basis of what we're going through. Before I give you the list of the generations, you want to remember that God has what we would call his funnel. He is narrowing down the scope of humanity so that eventually this funnel will lead to only one person in human history. And everybody else is being cut out of it. From time to time, he'll show a branch off of the funnel, but then he returns to the main funnel, which in this case is what he's doing right here. So here are the listing of generations so far in the book of Genesis. The first is in uh, Genesis 2-4. It is the generations of the heavens and the earth, and then the generations of Adam in Genesis 5-1. The generations of Noah in Genesis 6-9. Then the generations of the sons of Noah in Gen Genesis 10 verse 1. Then we have the generations of Shem. That's uh, Genesis 11 verse 10. After that, we have the generations of Terah, who is the father of Abraham. That's Genesis 11:27, And then we have the generations of Ishmael, which is a branch off of this main funnel. That's Genesis 25, 12. And then at following Ishmael, you have the generations of Isaac. That's Genesis 25, 19. And then we come to two about Esau. The first is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. That's Genesis 36, 1. And finally, the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. And that's Genesis 36, 9. This funnel, his line of selected people who would lead to the Messiah, and occasionally those who branch off from that line, is coming more and more into focus. Every single detail is precise and it's relevant. All right, we'll go on. Uh, verse 2 continues. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. Now, this story actually begins before some of the details of chapter 35. If you remember, Isaac's death has already been recorded, but he's actually going to be alive for about 13 more years. Jacob is, uh, at this time, about 107 years old, and Isaac is about 166 years old. Joseph is 17, according to the uh, verse, and so this is somewhere right around the year 2,275 Anno Mundi, or from the creation of the world. Throughout the next many chapters, Joseph is going to be a type, a picture of Christ. The number of the similarities between the two are so overwhelming. I mean, ju there's just dozens and dozens of them. You can't come to any other conclusion. The record of his birth, if you remember that from a previous sermon, and the giving of his name were the first of such pictures. 
If you remember, his mother's name was Rachel, or in Hebrew, Rachel, which means a lamb. The son of a lamb is a lamb. And Jesus is called the lamb who was slain in Revelation 13, verse 8. Of course, we have John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Then we can go back to Isaiah chapter uh, 53, where it says that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, something attributed to Jesus again in the New Testament in the book of Acts. The giving of the name of Joseph came from two words. If you remember, all of the sons of Israel, their names were based on one word, except for Joseph and then later Benjamin. But Joseph's name came from the word Asaph, which means to take away, and Yosef, which means to add. Jesus was, according to the Apostle Paul, the one who took away the reproach of the law, and he added Gentiles to his fold at the same time. Now this son will continue to be used in an incredible, an incredible number of times to prefigure Jesus. This verse is the first of them. He's feeding his flock with the brothers. He is a shepherd. Thus he pictures the Lord who said, I am the good shepherd, right there in John chapter 10. Verse 2 continues, And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. The sons of Bilhah and Zilpah are Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now there's speculation by scholars as to why he's with these four sons. But what is implied from the surrounding verses is that he is the one that's in superintendence over them. He is their chief shepherd. That's a term used of Jesus in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, our chief shepherd. If you remember who the two maids pictured, if you saw those previous sermons, then you might see why this verse is included here. They picture the exiles of the people of Israel. One happened, uh, the Babylonian exile, lasted for 70 years, as recorded in the Bible. The second one happened in AD 70, that was the Roman exile, and that didn't end until 14 May of 1948. But that's what the maidservants picture, the exiles. And so these sons are picturing the disobedient sons. Verse 2 continues. And Joseph bought, brought a bad report about them to his father. As the faithful steward over God's house, Jesus is the one who handles the affairs of his people. Joseph brought a bad report of the sons to his father. And Jesus is the Lord who brought the bad report of the disobedient sons of Israel to God the Father, thus resulting in their exiles. So you can see why that sentence is included in there. You see how much symbolism so far in just one verse about the life of Joseph. There is so much more ahead in his life as it's unfolded before us in a beautiful picture of the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, who is Jesus Christ. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. The name Jacob is used three times in this chapter. And you wonder how I know these things is because I sit down and count them. These things are interesting to me because they all have a purpose. But guess what? The name Israel is used twice. It's the same person, Jacob and Israel. Both times that Israel is used rather than Jacob, it is in connection with the name Joseph. Here it says, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children. And the reason is given. He was the son of his old age. Israel is the spiritual connection. Jacob is the earthly connection. So we have something going on here that you want to pay attention to as the Bible unfolds. Now, most people will take to mean uh, concerning uh, Joseph when it says he is the son of his old age, that Jacob had Joseph when he was an old man. 
But Benjamin is younger than Joseph, so that makes no sense. That's not what this is trying to tell us. In the Hebrew, the term is ben zekunim hu. Literally translated, it says a son of old age to him. This then probably would be a phrase or an idiom meaning a wise son. It's not speaking of Jacob's advanced physical age, but Joseph's advanced mental age. Joseph had wisdom and he had understanding beyond his 17 years, and Jacob loved him for this quality. God has many sons that are listed in the Bible in various contexts, but there is one that he loves above all others, and that is his only begotten Jesus. So we have this parallel once again going on. This love is seen and noted throughout the New Testament, starting right in Matthew 3, verse 17. It says, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The wisdom of Joseph pictures the greater wisdom of Jesus. And that's noted many times in the uh, Bible as well, such as one from Isaiah chapter 11, where it says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So here in this verse, and we're only in verse three right now, we have a beautiful picture of Christ again, the son of the father, and yet the ancient of days. It's a title which is given speaking of Christ in Daniel chapter 7. This ancient son who is filled with wisdom from eternity past is loved by above all others by his father. Just as Joseph, this wise son, is loved above all of his other brothers. Verse 3 continues. And he made him a tunic of many colors. And we're going to stop and we're going to talk about this tunic for a little while because this is a very important thing to consider concerning Joseph. Why is this highlighted? And we're going to explore that right now. It's a special tunic, which in Hebrew is called ketonet pasim. That's a plural verb or a plural word. I'm sorry. The term comes from a word, which means properly the palms of the hand and the soles of the foot. By implication, because of the plural form, it would cover the whole body. It would reach from his hands all the way down to his feet. What is implied is that Joseph wearing such a garment would be an overseer. He'd not be one doing manual labor. The garment is usually translated, if you know any of the old stories that you read when you were young, a coat of many colors. And it's true that it has a, ver a variation in it, but it doesn't necessarily mean colors. It could be either stripes, which vary in color, or stripes which vary in weaving, but we're not really certain which. The term is used only one other time in the entire Bible, and that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And guess what? It's speaking of the robes of the daughters of King David. Here's what it says there. Now she had on a robe of many colors. This is speaking of Tamar, the daughter of uh, King David. For the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. The beautifully ornate robe which Joseph is wearing reflects the same type of garment which is worn by the Lord. It is his human body filled with and adorned with all of the grace and the gifts of the spirits. Joseph's garment would have been a symbol of his beloved status and his place of authority. Jesus' life and his actions, which are a picture of that grace of the spirit, filled those exact same roles. The reason why I'm being so detailed in this is because if this coat is speaking of Jesus' spiritual graces, which it is, then the connection can be drawn directly to us. I just showed you that the only other time that this is noted in the entire Bible 
is found when speaking of the virgin daughters of King David. David, just like Joseph, pictures Jesus in his life. So the symbolism that we can draw from this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There Paul writes these words, listen carefully, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin. Think of the virgin daughters of King David. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so, at, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, the same graces of the Spirit which adorn Jesus are to adorn us as well. We, like the virgin daughters of the king, are ready to be presented to our groom, who is Jesus. Our religion and the gospel that we adhere to is to be pure and it is to be undefiled. People talk about this word as not being actually as relevant as a relationship with God. You hear that kind of stuff all the time. That happened to me just a uh, in the past week, somebody was emailing me about a situation, and uh, he said that, you know, I'm a Christian and I hold to God's word, but I don't think the word is as important as Christ living in me. And then to support that, he cited scripture. He actually started citing verses to support his view. So he's using the Bible to argue that the Bible is not a valid uh, way of of. God expressing himself. It made no sense. It was convoluted thinking, but that's the type of thing that we need to be very, very, very careful about, is that when we listen to uh, people preaching about the Bible, they have to hold it in absolute highest esteem, because if God spoke this word, then it is a reflection of who he is. That's the importance of what we can see right here in this particular uh, uh, passage. Now, finally, the symbolism here of the full body garment follows through even until heaven itself. Now we see it realized in its fullness in the garments that are worn by Jesus. And that is fully explained in Revelation chapter one. Listen to what it says here. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which are a picture of the seven churches. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So here you have this full body garment once again. It's worn by the Lord in heaven. I assure you that the words of the Bible as represented by our pure and undefiled religion, which is represented by the virgin daughters of King David waiting for their groom at some point, that Bible is absolutely of paramount importance. We can't disassociate the two and still come to sound theology. Verse 4. Excuse me, I'm getting a little bit dry here. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Joseph is the father's favorite, but he is not the favorite of his brothers. The hatred has nothing to do with the bad report mentioned earlier. A lot of scholars will tie the two together. They're completely separate. This verse is speaking about all of the brothers without any true cause, but merely out of jealousy because their father loved him more. They couldn't even speak peaceably to him. In Hebrew, the normal greeting is shalom lecha. You go to Israel today, they still say this, peace to you. This is the greeting they failed to even utter to their brother. In Hebrew, it says, velo yachelu daberu shalom. It's not that they couldn't speak peacefully to him so much as they couldn't speak peace to him. 
they actually wished him harm. Likewise, the Jews around Jesus, his own brothers of the flesh, hated him, and they could not speak peace to him. Instead, their words were harmful, and they plotted his death at every turn. This is perfectly realized in Jesus. Uh, John 15 is a very good example of it when it says, But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. In their hatred of Jesus, they didn't just fail to speak peacefully to him. They failed to speak peace to him. They intended and they followed through with harm towards him. And as we'll see, the hatred and the harm which follows to Joseph will be used by God for the sake of all of Jacob's home. The same is true with Jesus. The people intended him harm and they went through with their intentions. But this was known by God and it was used by him for people everywhere. Out of tragedy, God can weave a beautifully joyous tapestry. This thought is seen in John chapter 11. Here's what it says. Listen carefully. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. This is a wicked high priest. We know that from the uh, gospel accounts. And yet listen to what happens here. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now it reverts to John's words. He says, now this, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. These type of lessons from Joseph's life should give us the same type of comfort in our own trials. When we think everything is out of control and that God can't handle the situation, I assure you that's when he shines through all the more brightly. Poor Joseph, thrown into a pit, carried off by the Arabs to Egypt, sold in Egypt, becomes the master of a house and ends up getting uh, something happening. He gets thrown into jail. All of this stuff, and he must be wondering what's going on. His head is spinning. spinning. But God took all of those circumstances to get him into a position where he would eventually become the second ruler of all of Egypt. And that's the same thing with each one of us. As we're facing these trials in life, we don't see the end from the beginning. But God does. And everything that's happening, even these stressful things in our life, he is working around to get us to a good end. So when you are having these type of troubles in your life and you're thinking, what is going on? All you need to do is come here to a, a, a portion of scripture like what happens to Joseph and you can see God's hand at work. It's glorious. It's absolutely wonderful to see. Our second thought today is Joseph's first dream. Verse five. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. Now, verses 5 through 8 form what is known as a chiasm. If you've watched any of my older sermons, I brought a couple of these up in the, in the past. And this pattern that is found here is something that says something in one direction, and then it turns around and says exactly the same thing in the opposite direction. These are literary devices which God has put into his word, which will tell us something that God intends for us to see. This particular chiasm, it's a very short one. It's only three verses, but I found it while I was preparing for this sermon. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to post this on the YouTube video so that you can see it as I'm explaining it here. The first thing that happens in the chiasm is it's concerning Joseph's dream spoken to his brothers. The next point is that they hated him even more. And then it says, so he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed, which is the giving of the dream. Then you have the middle of the chiasm. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood up. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. 
And then it goes backwards again. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you have dominion over us? Which is an explanation of the dream. And then it says they hated him even more. Exactly what it said a couple verses ago. And then it finishes off with concerning his dreams and his word to his brothers. So it's, it's this pattern in here which is focusing on a central element to show us what God is trying to get us to see. This particular chiasm is showing us that even though he was already hated, it is his rule and his authority, which is what they truly resent. As he pictures Jesus, what we see is painfully clear. The tribes of Israel, represented by these sons, wanted nothing to do with their God-ordained king. It's going to take many years and many painful lessons for them to come to the point where they will acknowledge him as their leader and bow down to him. And the exact same thing is true with Jesus. We'll see that in Zechariah chapter 12. Eventually, all of Israel is going to recognize their Messiah. Verse 6, so he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. So now he tells them the dream and their hostility towards him only grows because of it. The anger is less because of how the message is received than what the message says. And this is the same thing that's going to follow all the way through the pages of the Bible. When prophets speak, they are hated for the message itself, not because of how they received it. They might have gotten in a dream or they might have gotten in a vision or maybe God spoke to them directly. But people claim this type of stuff all over the world all the time. I can open up my email on any given day and somebody's telling me about the prophetic dream that they had and they want to share it with me. And that's not what's reality by any stretch of the imagination. Only when God actually speaks to somebody is the message a message from God. And that message is almost always hated. It's not some light and fluffy message like the people that send me this stuff on the email. If you want to see a perfect example of this, you read the book of Jeremiah just once. And you're going to see it time and time and time again. The guy is hated for the words that he turns around and tells to the people. Because that's the way God's word is. It convicts us of sin. It tells us of things we shouldn't do or things that we should do. And we're always at variance with those things. What God reveals is far more offensive to those who hate him or hate his word than how he reveals it. This is true with what we would call natural revelation which is the creation around us. You know, people love ice cream. Oh, that's great stuff. Or they love uh, trees or they love swimming in the ocean and all of these things that God has given us. We're happy with those things. We're happy with what he's created. But what it tells us, that is what people don't like because it tells us that we're human beings and we are in fact created. And if we're created, then we are accountable to our creator. And so what do they do? They make up stuff out of their head like evolution to say, there's not really a God. We're not accountable to him. The universe popped itself into existence and then we came out of the slime after billions of years because the message is offensive in what it actually tells us. There is a God and we are accountable to him. It's also true with his special revelation, which came through the prophets and which is in the pages of the Bible. People say they love the Bible. You hear this all the time, or I love Jesus. But then what do they do? They pick and they choose the parts of the Bible that they do like or that they don't like, including the words of Jesus. You always hear people quoting the Beatitudes and how the meek will inherit the earth and all that great stuff. But when it comes to the judgment and the fact that we are condemned because of our sin, they don't want to hear it because they actually hate what the overall message says. 
And this isn't meant to be a downer. It's not that the Bible is a book of don'ts, which are condemning us all the time. It's a book of God's love to show us how to get away from those things. But people don't want to do that. Instead, they want to enjoy the good stuff and disregard the stuff that shows that they are accountable to this God, that the lives that they're living in, that the sin that they're living in is wrong. Churches will dedicate monuments of ostentation to the very thing that they hate. You get a church and it puts up a big cross out front and yet they deny the power of the cross. They deny the shed blood of Jesus because they actually hate what that message says. Professors, I can't tell you how many seminary professors in America have gone through, they've gotten their master's, maybe they've gotten their doctorate degree, they spent all of this time learning theology just to turn around and dismiss the very theology that they learned. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the way that people are. They work against the very thing that they claim that they are supporting. Now, Jacob's brothers hated both the message and they hated Jacob because, or Joseph, because of his message. How accurately he pictures Jesus right here. Verse seven, there we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood up, upright. And indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. This dream is so obvious when you read it that even if it's the first time you've read it, you should be able to see what's being relayed. Verse five says that he told the dream to his brothers. And that means all of his brothers. Joseph says, vehine in Hebrew, which is behold, there are 12 sons of Israel. They're binding the sheaves in the field. And then he re repeats his exclamation. He says, vehine, behold, something big and important happened. My sheaf arose and stood up. And then again, he says, vehine, behold, something marvelous occurs. Your sheaves stood all around mine and bowed down to my sheaf. Joseph one of the 12 brothers will rise to an exalted position in the second highest position in all of Egypt. And all of his brothers will, in fact, bow down to him. This will be literally fulfilled in Genesis chapter 44. God is showing them now of the future and what will happen to each of them directly. But he's showing their posterity what will happen in its ultimate fulfillment when Israel as a nation bows down before the son of Judah and the son of David. They will finally, as a people, bow down, bow down to him as their rightful leader. Even the Jews that don't believe in Jesus know that this passage is speaking about the Messiah. There's one ancient book which is often cited. It's the Zohar. In fact, right there, Raya Mahina in Zohar records that Joseph's sheaf is, in fact, to be interpreted as the Messiah. Now, if this is so, and it is, then it is explicitly realized in Philippians chapter two. Here's what it says. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee includes every Jewish knee as well as every Gentile knee. The nations will behold their Messiah and they will bow down. Verse eight, and his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This is the second verse that says they hated him even more. And it proves that this is an anchor in that chiasm, which started in verse five. The hatred is highlighted by the brothers, but it is a result of the rule which will be imposed on them. Shall you indeed reign over us or shall you have dominion over us? 
The question will be answered someday when they do bow to Joseph. But ultimately, it is fulfilled in Christ. When his conception was announced to Mary, Gabriel spoke these words to her about Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and is of his kingdom. There will be no end. His reign was prophesied by Gabriel, and his dominion is confirmed by Peter. In his first letter to the Jewish believers of his time, he says this, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I got to tell you what, it is all about Jesus. You got to wonder, why are all of these stories in here? They're interesting. They, they, you know, tickle our ears with, you know, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy sometimes. But why are they here unless they are pointing to something else? And God is taking this meticulous care of saying, I'm going to do something in human history. I am going to come out of my eternal state. I'm going to unite with humanity in the womb of a woman, and I'm going to walk among you. And all of this, all of these stories are intended to show us this. Every single word is there to be woven into this tapestry, this fabric of who Jesus is, so that when he does come, we don't make the mistake that he is not, in fact, God incarnate. He is. The biggest heresy and the biggest lie of all is people that deny that Jesus is the God-man. We need to be careful. We need to be careful that this is what we believe because this is what God is trying to show us. Now, let's go on to our third and final thought today, which is Joseph's second dream. Verse 9, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down to me. Once again, Joseph has a dream which is as plain to understand as one could be. The second dream resembles the first, and in the Bible, when things are repeated, the second occurrence is given to confirm the first. We've seen this a jillion times already. We're going to see it again and again in the chapters ahead. The symbolism of the eleven stars is the same as the symbolism of the 11 sheaves. They are the 11 brothers of Joseph. Knowing this, the sun and the moon can now be interpreted as well. They are his father and his mother. But there's something that we need to understand, and I never even thought about this until I prepared for this sermon, is that Rachel is already dead, who is his real mother. God ensured that this dream would come after that occurrence for a particular reason. Because this is so, because Rachel is dead, then Leah would be the mother that uh, Jacob is referring to. And this then fits the pattern of Jesus and the symbolism of the Bible perfectly. The son is not representing God as Jesus' father. Rather, it's representing the tribe of Judah from whom Jesus issues. And the moon is ultimately fulfilled in who Leah pictures. If you remember those uh, sermon from the past, Leah always and consistently pictures the law. In the Psalms, twice in the Psalms, as a matter of fact, I think one is in the uh, 60th Psalm and the second time is in the 108th Psalm, Judah is said to be the lawgiver. The symbolism is perfectly clear here. All the tribes of Israel and the law, which Jesus embodies, he is the fulfillment of the law, and the law is what established them as a people. All of this will bow before Jesus. Verse 10, so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, 
What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? This dream was told to Jacob as well as the brothers this time, which tells us now that Joseph perfectly understood what was intended by the dream. And Jacob understood it as well. And he asked, Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Jacob is incredulous. He, he can't believe it. And it's reflected right in his response. But the answer is found in the Bible itself. And guess what the answer is? The answer is no. There is no record of Jacob ever bowing to Joseph. It would be a stretch to even try to find this fulfillment in him in any way at all. In the end, this second dream can be, and it is only fulfilled in Jesus. The nation of Israel and the law which issued was issued to them is the only reasonable explanation to what has been seen in Joseph's second dream. Thus, there is a literal and a spiritual fulfillment of the first dream and a spiritual fulfillment in the second. But both are realized in Jesus in the ultimate sense. Verse 11, this is our last verse of the day. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This final verse will show us in the coming verses that envy can only lead to trouble. If you've already read the story, you know what's coming. However, our trouble can be used by God in ways that are much more marvelous than we might imagine. The terrible ordeal that Joseph will face because of his brother's envy will be used by God at the Exodus to show forth his glory in a way which has been remembered for close to 4,000 years. Another group of people at a different time was consumed with envy as well, and they committed the single most horrific act in human history. And yet out of this came an even greater demonstration of God's glory. The exodus of Egypt would never have occurred if Joseph wasn't first sold by his brothers. And our exodus from sin and bondage could never have come about unless Christ was crucified. And his cross, that came about by the consuming envy of his own brothers of the flesh. We read about that in Matthew 27. Here's what it says. Now at the feast of the governor was... Uh, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one person whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. In the end, Jesus' brothers handed him over, and it was out of envy, just like Joseph. But this, despite being horrific, brought about the greatest event in all of human history. Jesus Christ died for, his, for our sins, not for his own, because he had none. He died for the sins of the world. So I'd like just one more moment to take and explain to you, if you're watching YouTube and you've never come to know Jesus Christ personally, give me just a minute to explain to you very clearly and very briefly why Jesus is so important to you. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. That's in the inevitable conclusion of our sin against God and rebellion. He cuts our life short and it ends. And then the Bible goes on to say that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So the wages of sin is death. We all have sinned. And so we are all going to die. But the Bible goes on. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A gift is something you can earn. You can't make God happy with doing things to please him. You can't say, well, I'm a pretty good person and God's going to accept me because of that. You've already sinned and you are going to die. 
but God offers eternal life through his son. His son died on the cross without his own sin. When you transfer your sin to him, your sin is taken away, but because he had none of his own, he came back to life. He was resurrected. The wages of sin is death. He has no sin. Out of the grave he comes, and your sin is washed away in the process, covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is the marvel of what God has done for us, and all God asks you to do is to simply believe. By faith, I believe. I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to give my life to him. I want him to take care of all of my sin, and I'll spend eternity in the presence of God once again, and without it, it will not happen. All right? I got a closing verse for you today. It's from Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah saying that every knee is going to bow to the Lord Jehovah. If he ascribes this to Jesus, then the obvious conclusion that we can make is that Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He is Jehovah in the flesh. There's no way to get around that. So just believe in your heart that God has done this thing for you and you can be reconciled to him so that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will not be condemned, but you will be granted eternal life because of the merits of Christ. Now, next week, we're going to look at Genesis 37 verses 12 through 22. It's called the sun is sent. Great stuff in there. Many, many more pictures of Christ coming in that sermon. Now, I'll tell you before we read our poem and we close today, I say this week after week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right, I got a poem based on these 11 verses. It's called A Dreamer of Dreams. It says there, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan, a place of safety. He lived without fear of danger. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years of age, was feeding the flock with his brothers, when soon his life would turn another page. And the lad was with his kin, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report along with him of them to his father about the conduct of their lives. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children that he had, because he was the son of his old age, and he made his father's heart so glad. Also, a tunic of many colors for him he made. Yes, Joseph of all the sons was handsomely arrayed. But when his brothers saw this thing, that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him, only words so sore. Now Joseph had a dream, and to his brothers he told it, and they hated him even more. It gave them quite a fit. So he said to them, as he confidently beamed, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, all of us, you and I. We were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose in my mind's eye and also stood upright as my dream revealed. Indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf right to the ground. And his brother said to him thus, shall you... Indeed, over us reign, or shall you have dominion over us? Let us not hear this kind of thing again. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words, which made them really sore. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. I wonder if I'll have any others. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Will this happen someday soon? What can the meaning of these dreams be? So he told it to his father and his brothers, you know, and his father rebuked him and said to him, is it really so? 
What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Has this thing been decreed? And his brothers envied him, as you might expect, but his father kept the matter in mind. These dreams were given so that we could recollect that God knew before the things he had designed. God spoke through dreams and through prophets too, giving wise instruction which will carry us through. These words are recorded now in the Bible for us to heed, to teach valuable lessons to each and every one. So let us pay attention to his word, giving heed, this wondrous word which tells us of his son. Hold fast, stand strong, and fix your eyes on Jesus as we await that glorious day when he will return for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for bringing us back here to do the sermon for the people on YouTube. And uh, I thank you for getting me through it. It's awful dry in this room and uh, my voice is really starting to crack and I can feel the, uh, I can feel it in my throat right now. But I thank you for getting me through it. And uh, I pray that uh, it will be an honor to you and that somebody will hear something in this sermon which will enlighten your word to them in a way that maybe they hadn't thought before and that they will want to pursue you and pursue the words that you have given us more and more each and every day. I thank you, Lord, for all the goodness that you've given us in our lives, and we look forward in anticipation for more in the coming week ahead. May you be praised, may you be glorified, above all, for the wondrous gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.